because I was in a Scandinavian country, I was going to take uh, parental leave, right? Mid-90s, parental leave, French company, never heard of. Um, they fired me immediately. Patrick. Peter. Welcome to the Abraham Thank podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to have you here. I remember meeting you the first time and you were in my office sitting down on my sofa and um, I kind of randomly asked you, so tell me a bit about your story, Patrick. And <laughs> the stories really started rolling. The Unbranded Podcast is a podcast where we kind of unpack, remove the layers of the stories of founders, the stories of brand builders, and try to understand how their personal life and their life stories have, have influenced and impacted the brands that they built, the companies that they've worked with, and the companies that they worked for, and obviously their own leadership journey. When I look back at your story, I mean, it reads properly like a proper hero's journey. And I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see what's coming, coming next in the next, in, in the next chapter, in the next episode. French and British passport. You've lived in six countries, this Malta being your seventh. Correct. Yeah. You've been wanting to build stuff since you were a kid. Mm -hmm. Your first, your first business, your first um, adventure was selling strawberry, was selling cake in the marketplace. And then you moved into the strawberry industry. And that was when you were eight years old. Yeah. It's quite a story, Patrick. I'd love you to tell it to our, uh, um, our audiences. Okay, so my name is Patrick Halson. Uh, I usually uh, describe myself as a 30 years uh, experience entrepreneur, or sorry, 30 years of experience in entrepreneurship. Uh, but as you said, you know, I always loved kind of the idea of business, of building things, of trying to sell things. And, and when you sell things, it's like the proof that what you've done is actually appreciated by others and therefore there's a monetary transaction, right? So yes, I did uh, start, I must say, at a very early age. Uh, how or where I got this inspiration, I don't know. Maybe it was from already building Lego blocks and building, you know, a whole universe, um, with Playmobiles and Lego blocks. And then I decided, you know, that I wanted to make some cakes, sell them at the marketplace. And that's where I got my very first lessons about selling because uh, I had them. I remember I was walking there in the marketplace, like eight-year-old people were not really taking you seriously. And people were actually not buying my cakes. And I got really frustrated. And, um, and uh, then a person said, you know, but uh, I'd like to buy them, but where are the bags to put the cakes in? I didn't have any bags, right? Because I thought they would just buy them and eat them straight away. So she didn't want to eat them. Then somebody else um, said that they wanted to swap the cakes for something else, another object, which I didn't want. So I said no. Um, and then my mother came to the rescue and she said, you know, you've been here one hour, you haven't sold one single cake. So now you've got to go out, show and, and talk to people. And that was the first, you know, realization that sales doesn't just happen. You have to make it happen. Um, so that was the first thing. The second thing was uh, <clears throat> very funny as well, where I took my little sister on my toy tractor after we had been at the Pick Your Own Farm to, to buy strawberries. And I noticed at, that the price difference between the Pick Your Own Farm and the supermarket was half the price. So we filled up this toy tractor with strawberries. We went around the houses in the neighborhood and just uh, started selling. But the funny thing is, again, is was, again, the first experience of what can go wrong in entrepreneurship. So we had this tractor, the trailer behind, and we hadn't screwed the trailer correctly. So once we had filled the whole trailer, which was a tiny trailer, right? But the whole trailer with half of our strawberries, we did like five meters and all the strawberries were on the street. So again, my mother came to the rescue, took all the strawberries, put them back home, made jam out of them. And we put the next batch, made sure that, you know, we had the, the screw well on. And this is kind of, you know, very, very early stage ideas about processing, thinking forward, what you need to do to make sure that it's actually a success, right? Um, so your so mom was your first mentor? My mom was actually my first mentor in business, I can say, despite coming from a family where we have absolutely no entrepreneurs in the family. So I, I was, was going like to ask about the that. black sheep of the family in, in, in a way. I think it was something, you know, I, I always had a, a passion about. It's difficult to explain where and how it came from. But when I was a teenager, for example, I wasn't, you know, looking at football or anything. I was buying all the books I could get on entrepreneurship, on franchising, business concepts. I was even asking people in the US because at that time, you know, internet was not there. And so to send me the, the US magazines about franchising in the US, wow. I got like, I don't know, four, four dozen ideas, business ideas. And I was so sure that I would just start my, my, my company as soon as I was 18. 
um, that I had all these plans. And then my father told me, you know, it's better to have a, a university degree. So if it doesn't work, you can fall back on what you've done. And so, so I did that. I want to stop you right there. Yeah. Because I know there's a long way to go. And if I don't get this question in there, I've got to wait another hour. Right. But the, so what was the motivation at that point in time? I mean, you're an eight-year-old kid. Obviously, every eight-year-old kid wants to become a millionaire without knowing the concept of what it is to become a millionaire. Was it cash or was it the, the thrill? Was it the hunt? What was it about, about wanting to do something which is completely different? Because most eight-year-old kids still till today, yeah. you know, bang a football against the wall or, or probably play on mom's and dad's yeah. iPhone. So it definitely wasn't for the money and it's never really been for the money and everything that I've done. It's more for the, the, the pleasure of building something which is then appreciated by other people as a as a proof that what you've done has a little impact, you know, is mm -hmm. worth something. I guess, I guess you want to be, um, you want to, 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 to believe that you can do something and you can do something through the realization that others appreciate what you're yeah. doing. So it's also about being noticed, but it's also about being useful. Yes, also, but it's also the actual, uh, um, what do you call it? The, the process, right? Because mm -hmm. another thing I didn't mention to you is that when I was super young as well, eight or nine years old, or even younger probably, I, I had my own little vegetable garden because I thought, you know, that it was amazing to see how a single seed could become a vegetable. And, and I was there, you know, at seven o'clock Sunday morning in my little vegetable garden, which my father had agreed to give me a part of his lawn to do that. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, so I was doing that. And, and then actually, you know, gardening is also something which really grow on me and which I've really related a lot to business as well, because a garden is something which is never finished, right? You can continue putting new plants. You've got to take care of them. You've got to, again, anticipate on the long term what you're going to do, right? So if you put new plants, you've got to think, okay, what kind of colors, what kind of size will they have in one year? And so uh, how are you going to trim them? How are you going to take care of them? And it's exactly the same in business, right? How you take care of your partners, your employees, uh, your, 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 how do you build your strategy and how do you make sure it's implemented? Uh, because nothing that doesn't get implemented gets done, right? So, yeah. so a lot of people stop either at the idea or stop at talking about it. But you need to take this extra step, which is the hardest, actually. To but it's the first step to the journey of entrepreneurship. Yeah, of course, and it's it's not about the one percent idea; it's about the ninety nine percent perspiration. Exactly. You clearly were very comfortable getting your hands dirty at a very very young age, and this not obsession, but your interest in food is then what inspired you to go to university and study right yeah so at the time you know uh i had also all planned it out again i don't know maybe 10 12 years old i told my my grandma i had figured it out i would start buying eggs and i would get chicken the chicken i would get goats the goats i would do cheese the cheese i would buy a cow at the end i had a tractor and a farm uh but but then again agriculture was probably not the best um the best uh, industry to go in uh, at that time. Uh, so then I opted to go in the food industry. But in the food industry, what I realized very soon was that in the 90s, food production, and to a certain extent today as well, was only about you know volume and longevity of products and so there was no absolutely no health uh, mm -hmm. uh incentives or, or or angles to to food and then it became so far away from my ideal world of you know good food uh, healthy <laughs> vegetables produce yeah. and so and so so i continued my studies all the way to the end because i was really lucky it was a joint degree so i was on the university of um the faculty of agriculture and food technology and the business school at the University of Newcastle. And that gave me the insight into, okay, but how are we doing business? You know, so I had the marketing courses, I had the accounting courses, etc. And that then enabled me, luckily, to move out of the food industry and to get my first job uh, at L'Oréal in cosmetics through the door of finance. Okay, so that's really interesting. So how old were you when you joined L'Oréal? So I was 22, uh, moved 22. to Denmark. You moved I was to Denmark. I supposed to be there for 18 months. And before the end of the 18 months, my direct boss uh, was promoted. So they asked me if I wanted to become the finance controller, which I accepted. Wow, it's quite a, quite then, a young uh, age to be in such a responsible role. Yes, but it was really fun. You know, at the time, it was really about crushing numbers. We didn't have very good uh, IT solutions. So I had, 
I, again, there I was building, 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 building macros in Excel sheets, <laughs> automating um, the 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 accounts for for the CEO at the time, um, which you know it took him like four or five days to get the numbers with the. L l at the time, the IT system, but by optimizing everything, extracting the data, putting the macros in Excel, he always had them 24 hours after the end of the month. Wow. So in this yeah. way, it was... Yeah. Which is, I mean, quite quite on the money when you think about those days, you know, because I mean, we're talking what late... Early 90s. Early 90s, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so L'Oreal, you yeah. were working on, obviously, like the, the revolution of, you know, the hair, um, the hair revolution, if you wish. You know, exactly. We're talking about 80s, 90s pop music, which exactly. had, which is quite interesting when we look at the, the kind of hairdos of the time. Yeah. And yeah. so you moved from finance to the antichrist being marketing, right? Yeah, what so that there? was that was quite a, quite a challenge because uh, uh, what happened was that after two years of you know doing finance, it was like the same again, and again, right? A new budget, a bit more, uh, a bit more turnover, etc. But there was no more challenge in it for me because I wasn't building anything anymore. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go into the uh, what I saw at the time as the fun part, the creative part. You know, you build your brand, your brand, your campaigns. You do uh, adaptation of, of um, advertising movies from from France, Italy, etc. But then when I said that, you know, <laughs> the HR department in Paris told me uh, in a very arrogant manner, and I must say I, I, I have something against HR departments in my entire career because they never really understood what I wanted or what I could. Uh, anyway, that's a different chapter, but they told me, uh, Mr. Halston, you have to do the difference between what you want and what you can. And what you can is you've proved to us that you're excellent in IT, finance, and so, so your career is going to be in IT, finance, if you want to stay in L'Oréal. That's it, they put you in a box there and then. Yeah, that's it, you had the label, and because you were good at that, you could only be good at that. And their theory was, you, you need a different brain to be good at marketing or in finance. And maybe they're right for some people, but I, I was absolutely convinced that this was not the case for me. So, uh, and then suddenly, you know, circumstances made that I was super lucky. One of the top product, um, product managers resigned. And because the CEO really liked me and he saw what I could do in finance and he knew I wanted to go in marketing, she still had three weeks of vacation to take. So he had one week to do a transition. So he took the risk. He told me, okay, I'm going to tell Paris that you're my only option. We've got seven days to find somebody else. They are the biggest brands in L'Oréal in Denmark. So don't uh, disappoint me, right? And I took it like, wow, of course, no, I won't disappoint you. And and I pushed everything to an extra mile, you know, in terms of creativity, in terms of optimizing the money that I could use uh, for doing the campaigns and so and so. And, you know, at the time, you must think I was like 24 at the time. Uh, the turnover I was generating was 7 million euros and uh, the marketing budget I had to spend was 2 million euros. So I was like at 24 when I was coming to the big advertising agencies in a small country like that, 2 million euros is a lot of money. It so, is a lot of cash. So suddenly they take you really seriously as a 24-year-old and lay the red carpet nearly, right? So just to make sure you don't go to the other uh, advertising agency. But then what happened then in two years, I managed to get the two brands I had, number one, both in terms of uh, sales um, and currency and volume. So I really proved, you know, that it was possible to either have a double brain or whatever they called it. <laughs> there you go. But, but creativity was just, you know, so fun yeah. because, again, I was building things, you know, and I think this is maybe the key motivator in me is that it can continue building. So as soon as I come in a situation where it suddenly becomes routine because I've streamlined all the process, everything is running, there's no more challenges, that's where I start getting bored. Yeah, and optimization is quite a big thing, which we're going to touch and tap into later at the end of the conversation. Okay, so then studio line, marketing, cool, we're done. What do you do next? So then... Because uh, this is like now we're talking mid-90s. Yeah, yeah. So then Internet's I, coming I, in properly yeah, in a heavy way now. Yeah. And then, uh, well, then something something funny happened in a way, which was, um, so I, I got my son and uh, and I decided that because I was in a Scandinavian country, I was going to take uh, parental leave right? Mid-90s, parental leave, French company, never heard of. Um, so basically, I told them I was going on parental leave. They fired me immediately. Uh, I laughed. I thought, you know, you don't know what Denmark is like. So 
Uh, I did a cold case. We went into a cold case. One year later, I won. Uh, nobody ever expected me to win against L'Oréal, but I was adamant that I was not going to let go. And of that course. was, you know, and that could be a completely different chapter about how you fight a big legal entity and all the dirty tricks that they put in. So that's the second the big thing. fight that you pulled with, with L'Oreal because the first one was moving from finance into yeah, marketing. Yeah, yeah, you can say it that. in this way. Yeah, yeah. So then I, I won that. But in the meantime, I decided to start my own company because okay. I was, it was like, it was like exploding in me, right? I needed to, 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 to do it, uh, I, I had already wanted to do it before going to university, then after, then I went in L'Oréal and so. And I thought, okay, but actually now is the right time. I've had huge marketing budgets. I've you know had a great turnover. I've got all the fi financial understanding. So I'm just going to start a company. And uh, so I started a company. I took my uh, parents-in-law's car, went all through Belgium to, to see suppliers of, of handmade chocolate and foie gras, then went to France to look some champagne producers and so and so, and build a brand from nothing, right? The whole brand, the product portfolio, everything thinking that everything was like mapped out and quite easy the one thing i had forgotten is, of course is that the difference between a corporate and a startup is that the startup world nobody knows you right yeah. so when we used to come in a supermarket with the new studio line products they would say okay so we would say you know how many pallets of this do you want right and then the the guy would say three or four or five whatever uh having your new brand in a country where you don't speak the language Uh, and it's your first venture was a very very tough uh, it's a big surprise start. I think yeah yeah, yeah. so but I, I I you know I pushed again and and we built everything from the packaging to 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 the product assortment and so and we got customers like you know we got all the top lawyer companies in in Copenhagen we got the big fours uh, because we were selling really exclusive uh, products but most of our turnover was done for Christmas Christmas presents and so quite a season really. yeah and yeah. like waiting 12 months every time was again it, it wasn't you know exciting enough and in the meantime one of my suppliers uh, at L'Oréal he asked me if I wanted to become a partner in his advertising bureau and that for me was yeah absolutely let's mm. do that and then it was the start of you know online marketing dot com areas and so Uh, and then we started doing what we call at the time power sites, which was completely revolutionary at the time, which today is called a landing page, right? Yeah, for those But, for those people who don't, so who didn't live it like we did. Yeah. In those days, you wanted to build a website. It took months and months and months. Exactly. And it was typically done just by your big software houses. So mm. these were not web development companies. They were programmers. That's what we used to call them in those days, programmers yeah. who developed programs to put up a, a, what we would call a, a big website on exactly. the internet. If you wanted to change a page, it had to go into months and weeks of development. Exactly. So the power sites, creating sort of the landing pages, which was there to just create big marketing campaigns, I think had two big advantages. One was the fact that you could come up with something really, really creative. Mm -hmm. And two, you tapped into not the CAPEX budget, but you tapped into the advertising budget. Is that right? That's correct. And it was both an advantage and disadvantage because the advertising budget was controlled by the big advertising companies. So they wanted to squeeze us on the margins, you know, of, mm. of doing that because for them it was, they were they were earning more money by putting a new advert in the print or on TV than by buying a power site through mm -hmm. us, right? Because it was, it, it was <clears throat> still quite costly to do power sites, of course. but the, uh, but the impact was, was really great. Right. So we did, for example, uh, a campaign for master foods where it was like some of the first, um, viral marketing you could call it at the time i don't even think the concept was already there it wasn't a thing then no but what we did was we combined the power site with a tv campaign and outdoor campaign where people could go on our site and create a slogan and a banner for uh for uh, for master foods and basically every day we would pick a winner and we would send a hundred mass bars to their office and then we could see you know, suddenly in the database that so many other people were then trying from other companies and so and so. And we got 100,000 people on this campaign, which was wow. in a country of 5 million people. It's like amazing results, right? So we then sold that to Master Foods in the UK. 
at the end of the day, we were with like seven, uh, eight uh, L'Oreal subsidiaries, which were also working with us in this kind, same kind of power sites and things. And we managed to sell to L'Oreal in the US, which for me at the time was a huge, huge milestone because, you know, everything in the dot-com was like US, US, US base, US number one and so on. So, so being able from a small country like Denmark to sell to an American company, I thought that was, you know... The, yeah, that was incredible, of yeah. course. Yeah. And, um, okay, so that's that's kind of your, your story with, with, with selling the power sites. But as we both know, that company didn't wasn't as rosy as, as it was in the early days. So what happened then? Yeah, so... And so that's, that's your first proper business then. This, well, it's the second proper business because obviously there was the food importation business. Yeah, so yeah. So it was a, a very interesting business because we were also focusing a lot on, on um, brands for youth, right? So it was more 15 to 25 years old. Yeah. And so with all the creativity that comes around it. But then we arrived like, early 2000s and and we had to things were changing a bit it wasn't just front end we were starting to use like more heavier databases and things like that so then we merged with an IT company and uh, in the start it went all really well uh, but then that was my first uh, like shock uh, in life in in business as an entrepreneur is how once you start getting success how some people are so obsessed with money that they would do anything to screw you. And this is actually what happened. So we work like basically for crazy for six years. I won't go exactly in the details as to what happened, but at the end of the day, after six years, things really started picking up really well. We were earning tons of money. Uh, and the other partners just said, you know, now everything's working really well. Actually, we don't need you anymore. Um, <clears throat> and for some reasons, Again, because at the time, you know, documentation wasn't with DocuSign and everything. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't uh, prove how much, uh, well, I could prove how many shares I had in the company, but I couldn't prove what was the, uh, the what do you call it? The value? Yeah, well, the value was also very difficult to, to establish, but what was the process for going forward if one of the partners decided to fall right. out? And from this day, you know, I've learned that it's always, even if lawyers are always a bit expensive and so, they're still much cheaper to use them beforehand than after once you've got a problem because yeah. then it starts getting really yeah, expensive. Yeah, that's the whole you know, prevention yeah. is better than cure. And it's exactly. much easier to sign on the dotted line when everything is rosy. Exactly, and that's what I brutal. always tell you know partners when I see some companies who start and I say, okay, so what's your agreement with the other partners? Uh, yeah, yeah, we've got like an email saying we're going to do this and this. Yeah, I tell luck. them, no, put, put it in writing, you know, make sure you agree and make sure also that you decide because this is what happens in life. If you disagree on something, then what is the process? You know, mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong in disagreeing. And I think uh, it's like in a, in, a, in a marriage, you know, you should, even when you get married, you should even already decide at that time, so what are we going to do the day we don't want to be together again? Mm -hmm. And if you have this from the start in the contract, then when this day happens, then everything is smooth, right? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, to make a long story short, then what I managed to get out of of, of this uh, horrible deal was that I was the only one that had been working in intensive care units mm -hmm. uh, on this very, very small project for one hospital. And I, in the transaction, I got the right to, to take the IP of what I had personally done myself, uh, but also to take the chief programmer with me. And that's where I started the next venture where I went into healthcare. Okay, wow. So that was obviously, you know, at the back of, of dealing with adversity, on the back of dealing with this kind of breakup with your, with your business partners at the time, and moving into something which was probably a, a smaller side of the business at that point in time, which you then built into a very, very successful organization, which you recently um, exited, right? Yeah. Okay, so whilst all this was happening, I mean, you've got, you know, your your personal life where you're obviously, you know, like that that's quite a, a, a big deal, of course, mm -hmm. and your business life happening mm -hmm. and all this, how is that affecting you as a person? What were you going through at the time? And how <clears> did... I'd, I'd like you to communicate what you were going through, but also the, the feeling that kept you going. Because most people who, who typically would hit such a brick wall at that time, I mean, this could be crushing experiences. Yeah. 
so how was how did you manage to get over that that hurdle and keep on fighting because mm. resilience is definitely one of your strongest uh, strengths so resilience is definitely something that you build over time right and uh, when when I had this uh, when I was told that I was no longer to be part of this company this was actually the fourth event that happened to me in a period of uh, two to four years uh, the first one was you know uh, I mentioned to you I, I lost my son uh, a year later my uh, wife decided to divorce uh, two years later my father died of cancer uh, and during all that time I was you know struggling with my own little tiny company there uh, then I was working with with the with the others there um, so, so what kept you going Patrick I mean you, you've just described like yeah. three hugely significant events yeah and obviously anybody who knows you now sees this really happy guy happy go lucky you know yeah. superhero type of guy and yet you've been through some really really tough times which yeah. typically would you know would, would blow most people out of the out of the waters how did you manage to to keep it all together you spoke about hope you spoke about yeah so 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 basically you know the only thing that um that doesn't allow you to go to suicide is basically as long as you still have hope, then there's no need for that. But uh, to be perfectly honest, of course, these thoughts come through your mind. Uh, and I handle them in the way of saying that whatever problem I would have, I still have this solution in quotes, right? Which is to give up everything in, in, in a way, in a radical way like this. So I thought that if I, I still have this solution, so let's, let's put it aside and let's work on the other solutions which are a bit more uh, uh, constructive, right? Uh, and then it's just to constantly try to find your own balance. So uh, what I did was, you know, I was like stomached after they told me that I was no longer going to be there because it was just out of pure greediness, right? Mm -hmm. There was absolutely no reason to stop working together, but they thought that if they had my 15% shares, then they would be able to get more money at the end. Uh, which, by the way, they didn't because they never exited and, and that's another story. But, um, <clears throat> but you know... Karma is beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, in some way, yeah. So what I did was, for example, I, I started... Um, martial arts and i and i went to karate uh, three times a, a week three hours each time so like nine hours a week of just karate because it was the only kind of activity i could do without thinking of other things uh, you just have to be just so focused and push yourself so hard physically and i also there was a, a really great experience because i I realize, you know, how much more you can actually push yourself physically than you actually think. You know, if you got the right coach, the right mentor, the right uh, ambitions. Uh, so I did that. That was one of the ways of, of going uh, forward. Um, and then I, I started this company uh, in healthcare. And what kept me there was that I managed to build a relation with doctors and nurses, which was absolutely unique. And we were really working together hand in hand to see how we could together save more patients' lives because I was in intensive care mm -hmm. unit and operation theaters. And this was like a roller coaster of 15 years, but it was an incredible human experience, right? Absolutely. We were working together. Uh, I strongly believe that in whatever business you are, you have to be very, very close to your end users. And therefore, I was so grateful that hospital directors understood that and actually let me come in the ICUs, come in, in the operation room. So I've been there more than 5,000 hours in hospitals, wow, seeing everything, seeing every case. Uh, could, you, could you explain to the audiences what the business that you created? So what was the technology that, that right. you, you created and, and what was the end? What, what, did, what did it do? What, what purpose did it serve? Because you've told me the story and it's incredible, yeah. you know, because obviously when we tap into that, again, we're talking about optimization, we're talking about engineering and, and data. And that seems to be something which you're, you know, has been has been clear throughout, like these patterns of of, of looking for the for better data to give you better decisions exactly. to be able to help people. Yeah. Tell so when that. I arrived, you know, the first time ever in an ICU, uh, the head of the ICU had asked me if we could program some macros in Excel. And I thought, yeah, of course we can do that, but why do you want it? And and here we come to actually a topic which today is very, uh, you know, fashionable, in, uh, fashionable yeah. the why, but, but the why is for me the, the most essential part of anything, whether in business or in life in general. Yep. 
why do you want to do that? And so I asked him, why do you need a macro? And he said, well, just come to the department and you'll see, we need to do some different things, etc. But what, what I realized when I came in the ICU, I just saw piles and piles of documentation of graphs and things like that, which I knew very well were not used because as soon as they're in a pile and you are with patients in life-threatening situations, so just between life and death, you know, they're only still alive because of the equipment which is holding them alive. So I remember my first reaction there was, wow, what, why has nobody done any IT here, right? It's, uh, it's so obvious. I thought I had this picture of, you know, the cowboys going west finding the new gold uh, uh, thing. So, and then I decided that I would do it. It very, very quickly turned out to be a, a, a very um, productive kind of brainstorming. And again, here there was so much to build, right? Everything had to be built. And, and then I realized as well why the big companies were not there. And that was because it's the most complex department in a hospital. You can very easily build software which says, you know, you've got to give three pills a day to uh, patient X. But in intensive care unit, it doesn't work at all like that. Is what are we going to give to save the patient's life based on the last uh, data from the lab, uh, the latest, da latest data from the monitors, et cetera, et cetera. So you're building an IT solution which is only built on exceptions. Mm -hmm. And this for me was like a huge, huge challenge to solve. And I, and I knew that if we really work together with the doctors and the nurses, we would, we would find a solution. And that's, you know, after 15 years, uh, the difference between and after was that when we arrived, the nurses were writing, I don't know, five to 10 variables every hour, every half an hour on the patient. When we left, we could register up to 2,000 variables per patient every second. And that's because we did a patient-centric solution connecting to the lab, to the, to the medicine, to the monitors, to all the equipment, to all the recordings from the doctors and the nurses and so and uh, yeah, so I'm really happy with that. I had a lot of struggles, you know, could mention a few. One of them was with the IT department who constantly pressurized us to aggregate the data. And I constantly argued not to do it because now they're really happy with the, all the AI we have, etc. They can go back 10 years ago and see for whatever patient, whatever drug they had, you know, what was the heart rate three, three seconds before injection X at a, at a percentage of drug W or whatever, you know. And these are the kinds, this is the kind of data which you, which Extremely is in complex data. Valuable, yeah. But, but such value, right? Of I'll give course. you another example of why I was telling them not to aggregate the data is because in healthcare, you have very few clinical trials on mm -hmm. children for ethical reasons, right? And I always found this a bit an absurdity because that means that you don't want to try on children with the aim of saving more children later. So we can discuss, you know, whether it's ethical or not. But what I did tell them was that regardless of that, you are treating uh, babies and, and, and children every single day. So, and all the outcome as to whether they survived or not is also in the database. So you've got, you know, like a reverse kind of clinical trial yeah. by saying, what have you done on thousands and thousands of patients? And try to use the data to find trends, you know, and yeah, see... and see patterns. Exactly. And then once you find these trends, then you can go into a more... Uh, clinical proven methodology to test the A-B testing and things like that. So, of course. Yeah. I think, one, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sure that must have been quite an intense um, couple of minutes there. I really appreciate you sharing this with us. Sure. And it's extremely insightful because I think you're one of those people who has managed to turn a significant life event into a significant why. Yeah. And that purpose-driven um, you know, approach to what you were doing and I can just imagine you having those arguments with those IT departments and, and um, you know, simply because you're fueled by that why. Mm. And I haven't known you for very long, but you are a very determined person and you're clearly a very, very resilient person. And I think this natural approach to consistently optimize and consistently improve and to always know that there's a better way mm -hmm. to reach that why, I mm -hmm. think is what makes you really interesting as a person. Mm -hmm. 
So you built a business over 15 years. You have yeah. stories of people fainting now in the in the operating theater. You kind of got yeah. yourself to a point where you were so used to this. Exactly. And I became look, resilient yeah. myself in seeing. But I remember, for example, you know, if you take a short uh, journey back, uh, I, I always had a problem in the beginning to actually see patients because I have so much empathy that I was kind of sad for them of being there. I didn't know how to react. I didn't know if I, if I should smile or, or stay serious or, or what. And in the beginning, it was okay because, you know, in ICUs, you're behind these glass windows. So, yeah. so you feel kind of yourself protected from yeah. what is actually Removed happening. from the actual situation. Exactly. But as soon as we had to integrate with the, with the devices and things like that, I had to go in the room. So I took it like step by step. I started, I said to doctors, I'm okay to go in a room where the patient is sedated because in my mind, I was imagining it seems a bit maybe weird to think of this way, but it was more like a museum. I was going mm -hmm. to see, I was in a room, I had no eye contact because mm -hmm. eye contact is actually the hardest thing. The second hardest is the smell in some cases, but the eye contact was really hard. So I went with only sedated patients, then I got used to it. Uh, then I went into rooms where patients were, were awake, and then I went in patients' room, in rooms where patients were, could also talk. So you just say, you know, good morning, I'm just here to check this and that. Uh, and then, then I, you know, got so much used to that that I even ended up in some rooms where the patient was actually dead. Uh, I remember a situation, it was in the middle of the night, I had to reboot the computers at the time. The IT procedures were completely different from what they are yeah. today. Uh, so I was like, I was sleeping three months uh, at the hospital when we were launching our new medicine module, just to make sure that if there was anything, I could intervene within five minutes. Uh, so then I was called in the middle of the night, I had to uh, reboot the computers. And then there was a, a room with a sign, do not enter, uh, ask for a nurse. And at the time, my understanding was that, you know, if a patient has a contagious disease or virus, then that's usually why you put the, the message on the door. So you have to put the special equipment before you can come in the room. So I went to the next room. The doctors were busy with another patient. He told me, yeah, no worries, just go there. Uh, the nurse said, but, but, but doctor, and he, she didn't finish his sentence. He said, but he's French. He's done the French Revolution. He can cope with it. And I thought, what is he talking about? And I went in this room, rebooted the computer, actually started putting my password when I realized that the patient next to me was dead. And wow. I remember this, like, I had to kind of use like two fingers to remember what was my password, you know, to, to, to I had to concentrate so much. And then you pass another milestone, right? You're in a room where the patient is dead. Uh, then, then what I did in the um, in in the business and to engage everybody because every person that I hired had a passion for doing better for other people, right? So that was our our reason of being. It's what yeah. develop everything you can, optimize processes to save money, to do more features, and so. Yep. So you managed to create that culture and nurture that culture by yeah. even attracting, in terms of your employer brand, attracting Absolutely. people who are really keen. Absolutely. On serving that higher purpose. Yeah. yeah. So one of our top product uh, manager, she was, for example, a nurse, a super good nurse who had been really frustrated about the lack of quality IT solutions for intensive care units. So when I met her the first time, I always remember that she said, but if I come and work with your company, I will be able to leverage my or remove my frustration, not only for me, but for, for thousands of nurses out there. So for her, it was really a mission of making sure that every single details in the software was always you know, optimized for, yeah. for the users. Well, well done. So Patrick, you built this business over 15 years, right? Yeah. Again, you know, dealing with uncomfortable situations in the operating theater was not the only uncomfortable, um, you know, parts of the business. You faced, you know, the risks along the way, uh, issues with, with the funding of the company, right? As far as I know, you... I think we, we faced every single possible <laughs> thing we could face, you know, from, from uh, employees, uh, suppliers, competitors playing really, really dirty tricks on us because... As we were super specialized in, in ICU, we were actually better than the G's, the Philips, all the others at the time, you know. And so what some of these companies were doing was that every time we found a hospital that wanted our solution, but they were in the hospital system, they would tell the hospital that 
it's okay, they can buy our system, but the cost of integration to their system mm -hmm. will be twice the price of our software. So nobody in their right mind can go to the board and say, we found a really good software, but it will cost three times the price because twice we need to pay for the integration. So in this way, <clears throat> they were really blocking the market to yeah. us, right? So we had to go through the back door, find some partners, try to leverage our, you know, our way of, of getting in. And this was a constant battle for 15 years. And then in the end, you know, I, I decided that I would exit it because I could see that the fastest way forward to sell this technology was to actually partner or be purchased by a much larger, larger organization. Uh, yeah. And that's how I ended up selling it to, uh, to the biggest um, <clears throat> hospital system in, in Sweden. Well, congratulations for that. Thank I mean, you. that must have felt... Um, well, to, to somebody standing on this side of the fence, it sounds impressive. It sounds amazing. How did it feel at that moment when you exited? How did it feel when you just realized, okay, I'm done here. This is it. Well, and I know you kept on obviously, you know, working with that company, but yeah. surely, you know, building something from, you know, that was, that was the hope. That was the mm. hope that kept you going. That was the hope that kept you going when you set it up. And then when you got there, what happened? So, How did you feel? So, the exit was not the hope. And I think, you know, we have to really realize as entrepreneur that the end goal is not the only thing you have to look at. Because if you do that, it's going to be a really, really hard journey. Yeah. Uh, when I meant hope, <clears> I mean, that was the, that was the next step for you when you when you had to be when you were basically removed from the other company right okay so that in company in this kept perspective, this, this yes, perspective yes. Was, so, was keeping so that alive. for me was was a uh, of course it was like nice but after 15 years you know you've kind of worked you've worked with yourself and you realize that okay now i've done it because that's also what i wanted to do in the beginning but it no longer has the value that I had expected it to have in the beginning, yeah. right? For me, what was really uh, a relief was that um, selling it was a way of um, monetizing 15 years of really, really hard work. But I say 15 years, but it was actually 21 years because the first six years where I was in the other company where I lost absolutely everything, right? I was penniless. Uh, I had my just a room worked in the evening to pay for the programmer during the day um, so that was such a long journey that it was a relief to say okay I won't be poor for the rest of my life kind of thing right because time goes by you get older uh, the energy you have is not the same you mm -hmm. know when you're 20 or 50 um, so that that was for me the biggest sigh of relief because I also did something which I would never recommend anybody to do is that during these 15 years, I reinvested every single euro I had back into the business, right? So the good thing was that I ended up, you know, selling it with quite a, a decent proportion of shares because I constantly went, you know, reinvested. But this is a stress level that I wouldn't recommend anybody to do because it meant that I was you know, financially, it was impossible for me to quit. Yeah. And, you had no and options the only out other there. options I had was, again, as I said, you know, the option of suicide, because that would be the only way out, you know. So that kept me mm -hmm. on the right path yeah, to make sure focused. that I went all the way to, to making sure that it was a success. Wow. That's quite a, that's quite a hell of a story. Patrick, today you stand on the other side of the fence. Today, what you're doing with Supercharger Ventures, and I'd like you to talk a bit about what Supercharger <laughs> Ventures does and also the other investments that you have. And looking at yourself now as standing out on the, you know, on the supporting lines, effectively mm. helping other businesses succeed or helping other founders find their way mm. and also find their why. Yeah. So tell us a bit about the next step in the journey and also yeah. what Supercharger Ventures is doing. Sure. So, so you know, when you exit and then suddenly you get a bit more money than you used to have. So I didn't really know how to invest it, where to invest it. And so, so I just tried different things. Um, I didn't put it on the stock exchange because I thought after 15 years I couldn't face the fact of losing the money if the stock exchange went down. It was a big mistake because uh, in 19, 2019, 2020, I could have made a lot of money. But anyway, that was a decision. I yeah. don't regret it. So I invested in different uh, companies. One of them was Supercharger Ventures. And the reason why I invested in, in them was that 
they are an edtech only solution and i believe that you know education is probably one of the biggest um, things that you can support to make a better world right everybody can benefit from from more being more knowledgeable and so we know very well that all the extremists uh, come from backgrounds with less knowledge uh, more influential influential etc etc so for me education was was definitely something i you know I, i could go into after healthcare but again because of my age i wanted to find a way of actually leveraging my knowledge because in a startup if i had to do another startup then you do use like 80% of your time on administrative tasks or tasks that could actually be done by somebody else and my reasoning was that okay so if i can invest in five different companies and then just use 20% of my time in each of them and these 20% only give them the knowledge that i have um to help them succeed faster then that would be the ideal setup right mm-hmm. so <clears throat> i i entered in 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 different companies as a coach slash investor slash whatever we call it but but the whole idea was to be able to brainstorm with them as to where they are uh where are they going why do they want to go there how do they look at their priorities on every single day to make sure that they don't get <clears throat> overloaded with things which actually are not going to generate any value <clears throat> sorry and uh, and then supercharger came and and then they had done a deal here with uh, in Malta where the idea was to build a physical accelerator was to bring 150 of the world's best edtech companies to Malta on the 12 weeks accelerator program uh with the idea of you know s- some of them settling up in uh, setting up in in Malta afterwards so amazing <coughs> and i can see from the just because obviously i've met a number of these um of these ventures i've met a number of these startups and there's some really interesting um stories there <laughs> education edtech i know you f- you believe really really strongly that edtech is is sort of just at the very very beginning of an amazing um you know Jenny ahead why edtech and and why do you think that the world needs to completely change the way it educates its its students everywhere and when i talk about students i'm not talking about you know i'm talking about people who want to learn yeah. people who need to learn but also yeah. people who want to learn yeah absolutely so so why do i believe so much in edtech and why do i believe it's something which nobody can afford not to adopt it's very simple <clears throat> if you look at the world today we're really like competing with big big you know blocks and the geopolitical situation is really changing as we mm-hmm. speak but one thing that doesn't change is the need for talent mm-hmm. um and and edtech is an industry it's worth 500 billion dollars today that people say it's going to be over 1 trillion within 3 to 5 years i also strongly believe that this is the case and the reason is very very simple actually there's three underlying parameters which are fueling the need for edtech and which are unstoppable because they are global and because uh they are not you know driven by anybody except by society so the first one regarding edtech is the possibility of having edtech today if you think about it you know today you've got like 6 billion i think people connected to the internet <clears throat> so you've got the whole infrastructure which is in place to do education technology the second uh, element that happened in in our history is covid covid was the biggest single catalyst in the adoption of education technology so yep. now it was a pandemic it was the first time something of this scale happened in modern history so nobody actually knew what would be the aftermath of of covid but the founders uh, co-founders of supercharger ventures said that you know things are changing and they believe that education technology would stay for good mm-hmm. we saw a little bubble that exploded a bit after covid but still the underlying trends are that education technology is still going really really strong if you think about it before covid a uh, university like harvard for example were always claiming that they would never ever do online courses the best education is done on campus uh, having been there both 
on their courses, both online and offline. I also agree that it's a different experience when you're on campus, but uh, it doesn't mean that the online is not there as well. So then during COVID, they had to close like you know every other universities in, in the US. And then after COVID, they decided to, to test, well, let's try the online course. So they did an AI online course uh, just to, to try, and they got 4.5 million students. And that was like the That's paradigm quite a, shift. A right? multiplier in terms of revenue, no? Exactly. You know, so even at $100, if you wanted to put it at $100, you would still make much more than you would ever do on campus. Absolutely. So today we can see that there's a mix, right? So mm-hmm. online, offline, as I said, advantages, disadvantages in each, but it's a question of targeting the right uh, population with the, okay, but what do they actually want to get out of each of the courses? Now, the third very, very, and probably the most um, important aspect uh, fueling this edtech drive is the speed of innovation. And if you think about it, you know, speed of innovation today is faster than it has ever been in the history of mankind. But the same speed of innovation today is actually slower than it will ever be going forward. Mm-hmm. And this means that we're just at the bottom, the very bottom of a hockey stick in terms of transforming every single industry, whether it's with AI, VR, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, There was a very interesting uh, article showing industry per industry, how much AI was actually taking, uh, how how much percentage of task AI would would replace. Uh, If you looked at construction industry, it was like 5%. If you look at middle management, it was 30%. If you look at lawyers, it was 60%. If you look at radiologists, it was 90%. So every single industry is affected by that. And if you, on top of that, add the new eras uh, or generation of robotics, then you would go in in construction industry from 5% to 35%. You would go in farming also to 30% with drones picking apples and things like that. So this need for education is incredible. The uh, new latest uh, Harvard reports show that your or or my or whoever's uh, knowledge in a specific industry today is only valid for five to 10 years. But if you're in tech, your knowledge is only valid for two to five years, which means that if you look at it from a different perspective, if we wanted the whole population of every country to always be on top of what they need to know, we would need to build five to seven times more universities in the world than we have today. Yeah, and and this is physically impossible. Absolutely. And, there's and no this space is where the that. tech comes in, mm-hmm. right? To leverage, leverage, optimize, leverage, uh, streamline uh, the transfer of knowledge from one group to the other. And as you were saying, it's not just about, you know, putting technologies in primary, secondary uh, schools, universities. It's also what we call the future of work. So every single industry need to retrain their own uh, staff in order to to, to make it uh, attractive and viable. Yeah, and consistently, yeah. And constantly. I mean, time has flown. I can't believe we're close to the end of this podcast and I have like another six chapters of questions I'd like to ask you, but I'm going to try and zero in onto one really important question for me. And that's probably, you know, my personal indulgence over here and I want to learn from you. Um, Your love for education comes also from the fact of this constant optimization. I've seen you work and I have, there are very, very few people who I know who work as hard and as well optimized as you do. And I know that that's not just from the optimization perspective, but it also comes from that kind of consistent need to be resilient in the face of adversity. It's true that learning is something that we can do by studying you know, the, the virtual books and then by opening up and watching the videos and signing up to MBAs at Harvard if we wanted to. But I do firmly believe that the pattern of your life the need to be consistently at the top of your game and the amount of adversity that life has thrown at you has made you this good and this optimized as well. So what do you have to say about people passing through hard times and and the importance of keep on going? Right. So, so you know, it's, it's one of the things is the kind of mindset that you have to have, you know, it's, every time something is hard you're learning something so that's turning something which is which could be negative into something positive i also believe that uh, and that's why i never get on with people who complain because to every problem there's a solution so instead of using your energy 
to describe, you know, how the problem is affecting you, how difficult it is, and so it's fine to acknowledge there's a problem, but use 1% of your energy on that and use 99% of your energy on finding the solution. And if you do that systematically for every little problem, you know, you can see you're going to completely transform the way in which you, you do things, but also the way in which your colleagues uh, and, and, and partners also see things. Uh, this is actually, by the way, one, one of the things I really like in Malta is that we know very well that it's a bit of a bumpy road. There's a lot of new uh, things. Building a startup ecosystem is not easy for companies, for governments, etc. But what I really, really like here is that there's always this optimism of saying, how can we do things better? How can we learn from each other? How can we hear each other's perspective? And for me, this is, you know, a way going forward. Now, in terms of building your resilience as well, I think if you have this kind of mindset, then you just have to think of entrepreneurship as a real game, right? For me, it's like uh, a chessboard. Uh, all the other pawns are not your enemies. The other pawns are all the variables in the ecosystem in which you're actually working. And if you have this kind of visual picture, then you know that every time another pawn is, is moving, you've got to try to anticipate what is going to happen. And you've got to think like three uh, steps ahead. I know that, you know, professional chess players, they might think even 30 steps ahead. And if you can do that, yeah, why not, you know? But in a, in a, in a startup environment, and that's what makes the difference between a startup and corporate, is that you have to be extremely uh, quick at reacting but at the same time being calm. Uh, because if you do things in haste, you're only adding to the problem, right? And you might take the wrong decision and you will take the wrong decision at some point, but the more you can think before acting or think before talking, uh, the, the, the better the outcome, I would say, you know? And then it helps you to plan, plan ahead, optimize your planning tools, so get, you know, all the... Uh, necessary uh, IT tools that you need to have to support you, build the processes, never do uh, the same thing twice, you know, if you can delegate, delegate. Uh, I always had this saying that if you can delegate a task even on Upwork or other uh, platforms to somebody who's paid less than you, then do it because then you're freeing some of your bandwidth and then we can discuss about something else which is generating even more value for the company. Or you hire a junior employer uh, or employee or intern. But if you do that, make sure you know, to, to deliver the task in a way that the person can do it and do it well. Because if you have to do it again afterwards, then basically you've you know, missed the point again. So that's that. And I think the fact of... In my personal journey, uh, I know that there are a lot of things which I would have done differently, um, access to capital and things like that, working you know, way too hard to try to compensate what the others cannot do and so. Um, but these are part of the learning process. But one of the things I, I also learned in terms of um, what you get out of a, of a hardship is that you've got to constantly think and being creative and you quickly find out that time is your scarce, uh, the, the, the resource you, you've got less of, right? So, so you've got to optimize, as I said, you know, how to, how to make sure that you're constantly following the, the goal that you want to have, that you've set yourself. So it says without, goes without saying, if you haven't set yourself a goal, it becomes even more difficult, not only for you, but for your colleagues, because they don't know in which direction you're running, right? So there are a lot of of principles that you have to put in place and and the more of these you have in place the easier is is the journey and and the more fun is the game and i would still say one more thing about the game is that a game you lose some you win some right it shouldn't be that dramatic uh and it shouldn't be that dramatic either for for um, founders and i do believe that in courses of entrepreneurship for example it should be very clear that if you fail with your business it's not the end of the world right but we know that and that's why i'm supporting another company called founders taboo we know that founders today who fail in quotes because they have to close their business are really uh, go through a real trauma right some mri scans have shown that there's a there's a similarity between a parent losing a child or a founder uh, closing their business. 
Um, in the first case, usually you're not in control of it. It just comes, it happens, that's life. In the second case, if you lose your business, you can actually anticipate. There are a lot of warning signs which are showing you that you're going in the wrong direction, right? So it, there's no need, in, in my opinion, to, to be as traumatized as a founder because if you take the right steps, then you can, then you can stop in time and stopping in times means that you might still have cash in the bank, you might still have you know, a lot of opportunities, new hypotheses you haven't yet tested, but you know that you've used like so many years, pivoted so many times, you can see that your energy levels are really now coming to a, a low level. So this is the time for you to quit in order to rebounce on another project. And I'll just you know, say just for the stats that every founder always believes that they are the company which is going to succeed. And of course, you need to have this positive mindset. Uh, but at the same time, you must be realistic and you must know that the odds are against you, that companies do fail 70 to 90% depending on the industries. And, and you know, you've got a one in three chance or one in, in 10 chance of, of, um, of succeeding. So the way in which I think founders should think is that Every company they create should be an experience towards the path of getting there to the successful company. And if you think it's pure statistically, then you should create three companies before you can even start thinking, now I'm going to succeed. And you should look at the first three companies as experience. If you succeed with the first one, congratulations. If you don't, it's no big deal. Move on to the second one and then the third one. That would be like my conclusion to this. Wow. And I think that's a great place to stop this. Patrick, at Brandwagon, we believe in one very, very simple concept. Better people make better brands and the better brands make a better world. And you're definitely one of those people who's making this world a much better place. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for being so generous with your insight, with your experiences and um, yeah, with, with your overall being in today's podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you so very much, much for Patrick. having us here. Thank you. Thank you.